Hello, and welcome to this episode in which we'll be looking at the early years of the Weimar Republic in Germany. And I think it's fair to say that it's not an easy birth, is it? It's complicated. Yeah, very true, yeah. So, where we're at, if you'll recall from our previous episodes, the war has reached a very bad place for Germany. They've been choked off because of the blockade. They've been militarily starting to lose ground on the Western Front because of various issues. America's come into the war. Basically, they've lost. And the Kaiser has abdicated, but he's abdicated before the war is over. So your new government rocks up and job number one, door opens, army comes in, we've lost, you have to surrender. And as we've discussed and will discuss again, that creates a whole raft of political problems, which is made worse by what the Allies then go and do with the peace treaties in Versailles. Your gut reaction there, how unfair is the Treaty of Versailles? It depends how we see the Treaty of Versailles. From Germany's point of view. Ah, now from Germany's point of view. Well, first of all, the whole idea that, according to Article 231, Mm -hmm. it was all Germany's fault. Yeah. So this is the war guilt clause. The war guilt clause. Which Germany has to sign. Well, let's, let's, let's go back a step to the peace treaty. You have a major world war that's been going on for four years. Nothing like it in history you would think there'd be a major peace peace conference. And there was, only Germany was not invited. Yeah. So it's not really a peace conference. No. It's a, it's a thieves' kitchen. It's a let's, let's share out the spoils. Yeah. It is, as the Germans quite rightly say, a diktat. Well, well it is. It's a dictated peace. Yeah. You have no army anymore to speak of. No. Um, you're in chaos, in the middle of revolutions. And we have millions of men able to deploy and uh, and invade you. So, uh, do as you're told. Yeah. And so Germany has to accept responsibility for the war. And as part of accepting responsibility, they have to agree to pay for the war. And the problem here is they're forced to sign a blank cheque. Indeed, yeah. So the um, War Guilt Clause, Article 231, then leads on to, I suppose, a legalistic... Um, basis for the Germans paying reparations. Yeah. But as you say, they haven't actually worked out. By the 28th of June 1919, when the um, peace treaty is decided and signed, they haven't yet worked out how much the uh, the war's going to cost Yeah. So until April 1921. Which we'll pick up on a bit later on, because before we get to that point, we need to turn our attention to what's happening in Germany. So here we are. Germany has had a huge amount of its territory taken away from it. It's had industrial capacity taken away. It's lost various bits of land, various bits of people. Uh, it's had a section of it carved off and cast adrift as East Prussia on the other side of the Polish mm-hmm. corridor. It, it's a, Germany is very much feeling badly treated and abused, and the people who are getting the full blame for this are Ebert's social democratic government, because yep. they're the ones who surrendered, signed the armistice, and now they're the ones who have signed the peace treaty. Ebert's government are getting the blame, but it's not them, it's the army. The army is the ones who told them they had to surrender. The army is the ones who told them they can't refight the war, they have to sign the peace treaty. But Ebert is getting the blame. And that feeds in to this overall hatred of the government, which leads to 
what can best be described, I mean, in a previous episode, you used the word anarchy. And I, I think that's a very good word to use because what's happening on the streets here, and it kicks off very early on, that our first major uprising, our first major threat to the integrity of the Weimar government comes from the left. Yeah, and that's the Spartacists. Yeah, it's Spartacists. Um, so uh, you have uh, Ebert, who's trying to form the socialist government. His problem is, of course, the machinery of state is right-wing because it's the Kaiser's machinery of state, mm. civil service, yeah. army, police, you could go on. Yeah. At the same time, the mass support is socialist, yeah. but he's unable to unite the socialists. That's his, his big problem. Yeah. So you have the far left, who are the communists, Spartacists, because communism's got a dirty name at the time. And, as you say, the first attempt to subvert the Weimar Republic comes from the Spartacists. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, Liebknecht and Luxembourg, the two main leaders uh-huh. here. And they immediately start following the same pattern that we saw in Russia in 1917 and setting up Soviets. Indeed. So you get Soviets in the factories, you get some Soviets in the Navy, a couple of Soviets in the Army, and they start spreading. And the interesting thing here is you would expect that the police and what have you would help the government because it's the communists and everybody hates the communists. But they hate the government more. So Ebert has no one he can turn to. Who will help him in his hour of need? Well, there is somebody, isn't there? Well, you see, there is, because in your hour of need, always good to go to far-right armed extremists. (laughs) Who else? Who else would you turn to? So these are the Freikorps. So you just want to tell us what the Freikorps are? These are undemobilised irregular bands of soldiers who form themselves into military units, obviously under no central command, and under local central com- command, because they're not sure what's happening to their country. I was just going to say, they've come back, and there's no jobs for them. Because the economy's wrecked, so what else are they going to do? They stick with what they know. Mm-hmm. Including their uniforms and weapons. Mm-hmm. And so it's uh, Ebert, unable to rely on the support of anybody else, turns to these far-right extremists who've still got their weapons, and he says, deal with it. And this is not a police action, is it? This is this is murder. So the death toll is quite high, and Liebnik and Luxembourg are murdered. They're shot um, mm. without benefit of, of trial. Well, interestingly, again, against government orders. Mm-hmm. I think this is an important thing to note. Yeah. So when the Freikorps capture uh, Liebnik and Luxembourg, and uh, just shoot them, dumping uh, Luxembourg's body in a canal. The government has specifically asked that they be arrested. And, of course, no action is taken against the Freikorps. Now, this is a recurring theme. Yeah. Because you, you've, you've unleashed them, and you just, you've made your bed and you have to lie in it. Now, of course, the flip side of this is Ebert is now reliant on the Freikorps for his survival, really. Well, indeed, yeah. And certain members of the Freikorps and of the far right look at this and they're thinking, oh, well then. <laughs> and I, I, the person I'm thinking of here is, is our friend uh, Wolfgang Cap, Dr. Cap, I Dr. should say, Cap. Dr. Cap. And so he's the next one to make a run at this. And he comes from the right, doesn't he? Yeah, he's a right-wing conservative politician who I, I think really goes along with a scheme dreamed up by Freikorps 
commanders. Mm-hmm. He's the figurehead rather than the instigator. But he gives the cap push uh, political respectability and a focus. Uh, at this point, it's worth remembering the word putsch, which is P-U-T-S-C-H, basically means a coup, an attempt to overthrow a revolt, a rebellion. And it's just worth remembering because we are going to come across it again. In, in, indeed. I, I've always wondered why, um, if you're left-wing, you do a revolt or a revolution. Yeah. And if you're right-wing, you do a uh, coup d'etat or a push. <laughs> it's, all, it's all a question of style. Indeed. So you've got 5,000 Freikorps under the, the figurehead command of Wolfgang Kapp, and they basically storm and take over Berlin. Uh-huh. And Ebert is, well, he's right at the creek, because the only people who would normally call in would be the Freikorps, and they're the ones who've taken over. So he finds himself absolutely helpless... Uh, but he does have he does have one re- he has two recourses. His first recourse, of course, if some irregular band of soldiers have taken over your capital city, surely you'd call in your army to stop them. Absolutely. So let's pick up the phone. I'm Ebert. I'll pick up the phone. Come and help me. What okay. response does he get? Hello, General von Siegt here. How would you like me to help you, sir? Just come and get rid of the Freikorps now. Ah, uh, we have a small problem, sir. Uh, German soldiers do not kill German soldiers. Goodbye. Ah, right. So he he doesn't have any support, for them, but he's actually bailed out by somebody else. Indeed, he calls upon his old allies, his old pre-war allies, the trade unions, mm-hmm. and they organise a general strike. Which, as you know from the theme study, is where one union goes out on strike and the other workers go out on strike in sympathy, etc., etc. And pretty soon, Berlin as a city grinds to a halt. Absolutely. Emergency workers not working. Nothing's working. No. And there's no power, there's no electricity, there's no transport, there's nothing. And pretty soon Cap realises there's nothing he can do and the Cap putch basically just disintegrates. Yeah, Cap uh, goes abroad to live in Sweden, not heard from again in an important sort of way. Uh, Now, interestingly, you'd have thought that the pushists would certainly be in trouble for high treason. Absolutely, one would imagine. Indeed. Because after all, the, the, the Spartacists get themselves shot and dumped into a canal, so surely something similar is going to happen to the Freikorps. Well, maybe not similar. These are, these are officer-class people. However... Not some of them. However, yeah, surely there will be... Uh, there's no death penalty in the Weimar Constitution. Yeah, but they're going to get locked up, aren't they? Oh, for life, surely. And not only them, but you would have thought the um, army... For refusing yeah, to intercede. Yeah, well, that's yeah. high treason too. Yeah, definitely. So tell me what they get. Life, obviously, yes? Well, nothing. Oh. And this comes back to that point of the entire machinery of state and the entire polity of Germany is to the right. And there is no support there for Ebert's government in any way, shape or form. No, I, think, I think the point we have to really just focus and sharpen this off is that General von Siegt doesn't lose his job. Yeah, Uh, and these two major revolts are not the only thing because there are these constant little chipping away violence on the street there's gang violence, there's communists versus Nazis socialists versus the Freikorps the Freikorps going after everybody and in amongst all that there's a a constant stream of political assassinations The, 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 the one that you use as an example is in 1929, the foreign minister. So basically, one of the top three people in the government is uh-huh. shot. Indeed. On the street, uh, Rathenau. And 
so as an ordinary person living in Weimar, Germany, if they can't keep the foreign minister safe, what chance do I have? Well, indeed, and, and I think we've, we've missed out talking about the... Um the independent uh, Soviet Republic of Bavaria. Yes, indeed, yeah. The Red Rising. which And this is not the first time they've done it, because they did it in 1918 as well. So mm. Bavaria uh, sparked themselves off. And we will pick up Bavaria later, of mm-hmm. course, because Bavaria is a hotbed of extremism, not just on the left. There's somebody else down there who's uh, <laughs> who's having a look at the situation. So I think it's fair to say that politically... The the Weimar Republic is on a knife edge. It's constantly under pressure. It's constantly wobbling. And all, I mean, the last thing it needs is anything that's going to give it a big push. No, but at least the economy's good. Now, the economy's fine. Nothing could possibly go wrong there. Ah, what's this? We've got a letter that's just arrived here from the Allies telling us what the reparations are. Oh, wonderful. That's not going to be too much, obviously. It's got to be a perfectly normal number. We'll just open that and we'll have a look at it. And, oh my God, it's £6.6 billion. Ah. So, the reparations turn up and that hammers the economy. But, all right, we'll, we'll find a way to do it. We'll get it put together. And they make the first payment. Mm-hmm. But then they don't make the second payment. Now, some historians will argue about whether they couldn't make the second payment or whether Ebert missed it on purpose as a bargaining chip to try and get the overall amount reduced. To be honest, that's not really important for you guys. What's important for you guys is what the result of this missed payment is. Because the payment is due to France and Belgium. And France and Belgium need the money to rebuild. And they are not patient creditors, are they? No, I think you have to remember that although most historians and undoubtedly most UCSE students will see the Treaty of Versailles as an overharsh, revengeful mistake, the French see it as Germany getting off lightly. So their patience is going to be thin anyway. If you add to that the fact that the Americans are on their backs to pay off very expensive war loans. Yeah, definitely. So France needs the money, and so they decide, seeing as they can't get it in cash, they'll take it in kind. So they roll into the Ruhr, which is the industrial heartland of Western Germany. Yeah, I think you have to remember as well that quite a lot of prime industrial land has been given off to um, Poland and Mm. to Czechoslovakia. Yeah. And... Now, a great deal of what is left is the Ruhr Valley. Yeah. And so the French roll into this and they start trying to take the goods to make it back. And is at this point that Ebert makes what I think we can all agree is a pretty solid strategic error. I mean, in terms of what you're doing at the time, it's a good response, mm-hmm. which is you tell the workers, stop working, because if you're not producing anything, the French can't take it. Uh, that's fine. As, as a solution to that problem right there, while the French are turfing people out of their homes and shooting people in the streets, that's a good solution. But the knock-on effect to the economy is that you're no longer producing any goods. Yeah, I will first say that, of course, that's politically expedient for Abert. Yeah. How could he do anything else? No, absolutely right. No, I, this, this is very interesting. Because it's very easy for us now, sitting here, to see the chain of events here. 
and what it leads to. Ebert had no way of knowing where it was going because this is the first time a situation like this has really happened mm. and everybody learns from it. Yeah. And, so and, and just remember at the time that the British and American governments were very, very cri critical of the French. Mm. Therefore, it may well have seemed to the German president that passive resistance would move the French because of the American and British pressure. Yeah. So... He says to the workers in the Ruhr, you go on strike, which they do. The economy starts to go down the toilet and there's not enough money. Simple solution. Yeah, it's the basic principles of inflation. You have a certain amount of money and a certain amount of goods that can be bought with that money yeah. in the economy. Now, if the amount of goods available in the economy uh, reduces but the supply of money stays the same, there will be rapid inflation. Mm -hmm. And this is exacerbated by the fact that to deal with what appears to be the devaluing of the money, they print more exactly to increase the supply. And the more money you print, the less each individual bit of money is worth. Exactly so. And so it just begins to... And this is not a simple curve. This is like exponential. Because you're having to print more money to satisfy more demand. And every time you print more money, it creates more demand and reduces the value of money. So you print more and it's happening on an almost hour by hour basis. I mean, we don't need to go through all the stuff. You've seen the pictures. You've seen the people burning the notes as fuel because it's cheaper than wood. You've seen the people getting their daily wage in a wheelbarrow full of cash. So you yeah. know all this stuff. They're, they're good examples to give, of course, of, of the extent of the devaluation. But I, th I think the key thing is the effect of the devaluation and how it hits. Because for the workers, who should be the natural allies of the socialists, to see that I've worked my week and now you're telling me that that won't even buy a cup of coffee, Th that really damages the trust in the government, and then the middle class. Ah, now the middle classes. Yeah. These are the people with a stake in society. The middle classes yeah. only ever vote for moderate parties. Yeah. And that's because they have something to protect. They have a stake in society. They yeah. may even own their own houses. Okay, they may have a small business. They may have savings. Yeah, you've scrimped, and you've saved, and you've saved this money, and you've put a little bit away every week. A little nest egg, just to maybe... Help your kids when they're a bit older. Pay for your retirement. Pay off the mortgage on your house. I'm sitting there and I've got this five or ten thousand Reichsmarks that I've... I... I have some bad news for you, sir. Go on. They now won't buy you a Fredo bar. Right. So, not the house. So, the, the loss of support for the middle classes is really the most dangerous possible thing. This really feels like the death knell for the Weimar Republic. This certainly makes the Weimar Republic uh, struggle. If you don't have the middle classes... You've lost the support of the workers, you've lost the support of the extreme left, you've lost the support of the extreme right, and now you've lost the support of the centre. You are right up the creek. If only there was some sort of a hero waiting in the wings here who could step up and try and do something. But that is a story for another episode. Indeed. So, what is the key takeaway here from the post-war problems in Germany? 
broadly speaking, you've got the economic problems and you've got the political problems. Indeed. Which would you say is the biggest problem that they're facing? Is it the economic problems caused by the economic damage after the war and then exacerbated by the reparations, the invasion of the raw and the hyperinflation? Or is the political instability the core problem which makes the economic problems worse? The latter. Uh, I believe had everything been plain sailing on the economic front, and of course it couldn't possibly have been given the state of Germany following the encirclement and so on, had everything been plain sailing, then there would still have been the same political troubles. But the fact that the Weimar Republic survived in those few years would have allowed a centrist culture to settle in. Mm -hmm. The story of the Weimar Republic in those first few years is nobody particularly supports the Republic, but it survives because there are enough people who hate the alternatives that present yeah. themselves yeah. worse. Yeah. Now that's magic for the Weimar Republic and it gives them a space to develop a culture of liberal democracy. Only it doesn't mm -hmm. because of the economic stresses which radicalise everybody. Yeah. Do you think that the Weimar government is doomed from the beginning? I mean, I, I mean, everybody knows, or you should do, because this is a revision podcast, everybody knows that it's going to survive through to 1933, okay? But where it was, when it was, did it ever have a chance? That one's pretty difficult. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> I would suggest that it did well to survive 1923. Yeah. Possibly it surpassed expectations yeah. purely f through luck rather than judgment. And then we have some judgment and a bit of luck in terms of the doors plan and the economic recovery, things we'll talk yeah. about later. Yeah. So it recovers. However, underneath the surface, there are still some structural, economic and political problems. And Chiefly economic problems. And these are the problems that we see here at this point. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's fair to say that 1923 is the closest it comes to collapse. Because something else happens in 1923 that we haven't talked about yet, because somebody else is going to chance their arm. Indeed. But that's a story for another episode. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck in your exams. <laughs>